chapter 18, I want to pray also for our ministry and our partners in, uh, in Guatemala. You know, because we read about these, these events and then they quickly fade away. And I don't even know if you caught, because it was just literally a blip on our local news here. But in these Caribbean storms last week, there was a tremendous uh, amount of rainfall that fell in Central America. And in one particular village, just an hour away from where we are on the ground in Guatemala, there was a, a landslide that wiped a village off the face of a map, buried some 400 people. Um, and eliminated a village, a lifestyle for a whole community. And so as we gather this morning, let's pray for that, those churches, those families, and the churches around the world that are facing uh, just incredible, incredible challenges this morning. Father, it's in your name that we gather. It's in your name that we have hope. Lord, the songs that we sang this morning we're not, was not just an exercise in futility, Lord. It, it's our prayer, it's our faith, it's our belief. Lord, do your work, we pray, not only in Nepal, but in Guatemala. Lord, we pray for those communities that have been devastated, those that are mourning loss. God, we pray for the churches down there that gather in the name of Jesus Christ, that you would fill them with your power and spirit. Give those leaders wisdom to minister and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in the midst of this trial. Lord, we pray also for those churches that gather in refugee camps and in war-torn countries, Lord, through the Middle East and North Africa. And uh, Lord, wherever people are gathered in your name this morning, we pray that your spirit would move mightily. And we pray that for here at 500 Brandywine Drive too, Lord, that you'd move. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 18. We've been going through the gospel of Luke. You may kind of lose track of that as you come and go because we've done a lot of different things this year, brought a lot of guest speakers in. Pastor Bob has done some amazing um, series, just finished one up on Israel. But in between, we've been returning to the gospel of Luke and we're back there now. And I just wanted to remind you, it kind of it gets caught up in... Um, the busyness and, and the bouncing around, just the continuity of this story and the, the incredible storytelling that Luke does for us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Luke was a physician, we know, Dr. Luke, right? He wrote this book, he wrote the book of Acts for us. And what you're getting is a scientist, a, a person who was experienced in capturing observation with detail and then communicating it. And he does so in, in one of the most profound books ever written. Back in Luke, around chapter 9, something takes place that you may just read over if you don't kind of just dive in and live in this book all the time. And what's happening is, is Jesus is moving from one region in, in the, what we would now call Israel, but up around the Sea of Galilee, the Galilean region, and he makes a transition and he moves down heading towards Jerusalem. And Galilee is where the, 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 the Jews lived, and I think Jesus loved that area. I think that really was kind of where his heart was oftentimes. That's where a lot of his craft was, and a lot of his family was, and a lot of his friends were. And of course, we see him in and out of Jerusalem for religious holidays, and then he makes a move towards this chapter 9 and 10 of Luke, and he heads towards Samaria. I'm sorry, through Samaria heading towards Jerusalem, but passing through Samaria. 
So going from one religious region to the other. And it's kind, of, it's kind of the way we as Christians live our lives oftentimes. We go from Sunday to Sunday, or Sunday to Wednesday perhaps, Sunday to Sunday, and in between we have to pass through Samaria. And Samaria is where you work, it's the neighborhood you live in, it's, it's where you do business, it's where you do commerce, it's where you spend the majority of your time. And I think it's where the gospel many times has the most impact And more importantly, it's where some of the greatest learning takes place. And in this Samaritan journey, as Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem, he's just about there as as we're reading through Luke 18, just about to turn the course in Jericho and take the ascending road up into Jerusalem. Around Luke chapter 11, there's a really significant question that's asked by a disciple. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1, one of the disciples says to him, Lord, teach us to pray. What a great request, isn't it? Have you ever asked that? Have you ever cried that out? Lord, teach us to pray. And then he, he, he includes in that this statement. He says, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught the disciples. Now, that's an interesting request. Because you could, you could look at it two different ways. Lord, teach us to pray just as John, John the Baptist he's talking about, just as John taught his disciples. And you could look at it in the context, oh, John the Baptist might have been a, had a great reputation of teaching his disciples how to pray or how to pray. But you could look at it the other way too. You could say, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Now, What I mean by that is John was a rabbi. Jesus is a rabbi. The disciples are saying to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples. In other words, Lord, we've heard about John, how he took the disciples out just with a cloak and and sandals and he took them out into the wilderness and, you know, they ate locusts and honey and they they lived off the land and they went to wherever the spirit would move and they they sought out and oftentimes it got them in trouble and it got them in difficulty and they really, Lord, they were on the, the cutting edge of ministry. Lord, teach us, take us into that classroom, take us into that laboratory and use that laboratory to teach us how to pray. And Jesus responds to that. For the next 13 chapters of Luke that follow, the entire book of Acts, and the story that's being written by his followers today, Jesus continues to teach us how to pray. And it continues this morning. Because I know that you've gathered to this place, and I know the main reason we come to church is because we want to pray. We want to hear from God. We want to communicate with God whether it be through song or through teaching or through silent prayers or through voiced prayers, we want to learn how to pray. We're hungering as a people. I don't know about you, but I'm hungering and thirsting to commune with our Savior, and I believe you are too. And if you're anything like me, and I'm guessing that we're probably more alike than we are different, you're probably often, when with, with regard to your prayer life, you're probably often dissatisfied. If you're like me, you probably wish that you had a more vibrant and healthy prayer life. If you're like me, you probably wish you knew exactly what God desired of you with regard to your prayer life. If you're like me, 
You probably spend a fair amount of time doing mental comparisons of yourself towards other people that you respect and admire with regards to prayer. You wish you had their prayer life. Only truth be told, you probably have no idea what their prayer life really entails, right? And if you're like me, at the top of your list is a desire to hear back from God more often as a result of your prayers. Is anybody like me? If that describes you at all, then you're in good company. Not because you're in my company. You're in good company because together we're in the company of praying men and women throughout the Bible who have expressed those same desires, who have wrestled with those same desires, those same yearnings, and who have struggled with the fact that God often is silent in response to our prayers. People who pray are deeply experienced in God's silence. I'm going to prove that to you this morning. One of the ways that we can prove that is to go to the book of prayer, the book of Psalms. This is, Psalms is where we learn to pray. Psalms is where we form our vocabulary on prayer. And I want to just take you through a couple Psalms. You don't have to turn there. I'll, we'll put them up on the screen for you. And I want you to listen to the language and see if it's a common language with your prayers oftentimes. I had a man come up to me after the first service who's a, who's a dear friend of mine. And he's an amazing man of prayer. And he's been shaped in that mold because of the battle of cancer that he's walking through with his wife. He's a guy that I would put on this stage and say, let him teach you about prayer, because he knows a lot more about it than I do. And he came up this morning and said, Steve, i got to have that list of psalms, <laughs> because that's my voice. And sometimes I feel guilty about it, but if I hear it coming from God's people, then I know that we're in this experience together. So here they are, Psalm 10, verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 22, the Lord had memorized this psalm as a young Jewish boy, and then he speaks it from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and I'm not silent. Psalm 44, verses 23 and 24, awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Psalm 77, verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Why, 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 how long, how long, how long? People who pray know what it's like to hear nothing in response. People who pray 
don't get what they ask for when they ask for it all the time. And this is just a sampling of the Psalms. It's everywhere, not only in the Psalms, but in the voices of our prophets. People who pray ask how long and why and why not a lot. However, come on, this is important. There's one thing that praying people do. They keep on praying. Despite the silence, they keep on praying. And as we read through Luke 18, Jesus uses the gift of story to challenge us, to encourage and mentor us along in our prayer life. This pray always parable in Luke chapter 18 is the answer to the Pharisees' question that was asked back in Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Now, we looked at, Pastor Bob looked at that last week. Remember, they asked Jesus, they said, when is the kingdom of God coming? Luke loves that phrase, the kingdom of God. He'll use it some 51 times in his writings. Some uh, 47 times, I think, just in the Samaritan journey itself. When is the kingdom of God coming, the Pharisees asked. But they asked with a, with, a, with a mischievous intent in their heart. They wanted to trick Jesus. They wanted to catch him up in saying something that would get him in trouble. And Jesus goes through that apocalyptic description that fills Luke 17. We looked at that last week because the, the, the apocalyptic language always moves us towards kingdom issues. apocalyptic language is good for us. It moves us. It moves the church. And it gets us focused on the things that are important, the kingdom of God, which Jesus said was at hand. But Jesus' answer to that question, after he goes through that apocalyptic description, his answer really is found right here in Luke 18, this first parable. And to paraphrase it, to sum it all up, Here's kind of what I think Jesus says to them. He says, listen, quit looking around and asking when. Pay attention to who you are and who I am. And for a start, maybe you should begin praying. We keep on praying because we know that the kingdom business is urgent business. Jesus said the kingdom is in your midst. It has arrived. And the kingdom is in our midst. No, in fact, it's in you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, his spirit's in you. The kingdom of God resides in you. Wherever you go, you have the ability to influence communities and workplaces and families for the kingdom of God because you carry his spirit in you. And Jesus says as we move towards the end times, you, need, you have two options. Either you're going to pray or you're going to faint. You either pray or it's going to wear you out. You either pray or you're going to lose heart. G. Campbell Morgan in his commentary on Luke chapter 18 talks about this idea of praying always because this is a pray always parable. This is an exhortation from Jesus to, for us as church to continue to pray and to pray always, just as 
Peter, or I'm sorry, Paul later on would, would tell us and exhort us in his letters to the church. G. Campbell Morgan says this, it may be asked, how can people always pray? The answer is that we must understand what prayer is. Prayer is far more than uttering words. I can pray when I do not think I'm praying. We can pray without any words at all. Prayer in the last analysis is the urge of life towards God and spiritual things. It's the setting of the mind upon things above, as the Apostle Paul would say. Campbell Morgan goes on to say, every detail of every day can be mastered by that urge. Prayer literally means to wish forward. Prayer then desires towards the ultimate, the urge that forever masters life for the coming kingdom of God and the victory of all things spiritual. Now, said Jesus, unless your life is of that nature, you will faint. Now, this parable that we're about to read here in Luke 18 is a parable of contrast. Dramatic contrast, and it needs to be seen that way. Let's read through it and talk about it a little bit. Luke 18, verse 1. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying there was a certain city, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, though I do not fear God, nor regard man. Those are the two, those are the two uh, plates in the, in the scale of, of, of Jewish society, the, the fear and reverence of God and the, and the honoring and respect of man. Those are the two tablets of the law. And he is neither. Jesus is going to describe him in a minute as the unjust judge. No fear, regard for God, no concern about his fellow man. Get justice from me, for my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, verse 5, Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest her in her continual coming she weary me. It says in the New King James. In the New American Standard it says, she, the, the, the language there is, will pummel me. It's the same word when, when Paul talks about, I pummel my body for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the cross, that idea of beating himself up, lest she beat me up, lest she give me a black eye. Then the Lord said, verse 6, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily, it says here in the New King James. Circle that word. He will avenge them speedily. And nevertheless, the son of, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, will you prevail in this or will you faint? This is a 
dramatic story, a dramatic parable of, of contrast. Let's look at the contrast between us and the widow. The widow represents the kingdom of God, that not, not in similarities, but in contrast, the differences. The widow, we know in this culture, would be poor. She would have no rights. She would have no representative. She was really had no way into the court or into the presence of this judge. The widow was a stranger to the judge. The contrast is we are the children of God. The widow has no access to the judicial system. In that, in that day and age, the only way to even get into the, 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 the tent of the judge, they would be like roaming um, circuit courts, and they would have an entourage around them, keepers of the court, and the only way you would even have a matter heard was to bribe one of the keepers of the court to get your case heard. She has no money, no rights, and not, no, no respect. No access into the judicial system. But we as God's children have complete access to him at any time. The widow has no friend in the court. There's no one to get her case on the docket. You either had to bribe somebody or know somebody. But we as children of God, when we pray, we have an advocate. We have a high priest that represents us before the throne of God. The greatest contrast between us and this widow is she comes into a court of law with an unjust judge. But we, as children of God, we come to the throne of grace before a merciful God. Now, this contrast is meant to be startling. If we fail to pray, our condition will end up being like that of the widow. Now, without seeing this parable as a contrast, the danger is, is that we begin to make similarities in the response of the judge to the Lord. Without seeing this parable as a contrast, it's easy to get the idea that God must be argued with or bribed into answering our prayers. And that is not the case. God is nothing. He's absolutely nothing like the judge in this story. In the contrast to the judge in this story, our God is a loving Father. Our God is attentive to every cry of His people. Our God is generous in all of His gifts. He's concerned about every need. He is just and merciful. He is ready to answer when we call. Our God answers prayers for one, actually two reasons. He answers prayers for His glory and for the good of his people, according to his perfect will. So then, if that's the case, how do we explain the delays in response to our prayers? Jesus says right here in verse 8, that he will avenge them speedily. How do we explain that? How do we explain those months, years sometimes, where we feel that there's no response to our prayers? One way to explain it is to remember that God's delays are not delays of inactivity. 
but rather they are delays of preparation. Our preparation. You see, the truth is, because it says it right here, and it says it in verse after verse after verse in the Bible, that God is always answering prayer. If that were not true, we would be left with a very thin Bible. We would have to eliminate half of the, half of the songs that we sang this morning. We wouldn't be able to sing. And the scriptures that those songs were based on, we'd just have to tear sections and chapters out of the Bible, and pretty soon you'd have a pamphlet you could just fold up and put in your breast pocket because it would be that small. The truth is, God is always answering prayers. The reality, though, is that it takes years of our experience of understanding, often years that are accompanied with periods of suffering, to realize that some of the best answers that God has for our prayers are no and not yet. Jesus starts this parable by urging his followers to pray at all times and not lose heart, not to faint. Jesus ends this parable by asking the question, who will be found faithful? The definite article, will there be faith? Will there be the faith? Will the church be found when he comes again? In 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 3, in the letters of Timothy to the church, he paints a very sad and dark picture of the end days, the last days, and how the church will Many will fall away and they'll begin to follow false doctrine and there'll be inerrant teaching. And and it's it's a grim, grim warning that Timothy gives us. And in the face of that day, against that backdrop, I believe Jesus is asking, will we pray and maintain or will we faint? Now Jesus goes right from this parable here right into the next parable. And it also is a parable in the context of prayer. Now, he doesn't come right out and say, listen, this is the attitude how I want you to pray, but he, rather he tells a story of prayer regarding two people with two vastly different attitudes. The story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Two men went up to the temple to pray. And this is interesting because you know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's any other parable that I've come across, parable, that Jesus tells involving a religious setting, a temple setting. There's lots of stories from the temple, healings in the temple and conversations in the temple, but this is the only parable that he tells that takes place in the temple, in the church. Two sinners coming to church. One sinner's a Pharisee, one sinner's a tax collector. They're both sinners. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. And you'll see quickly that this guy has an eye problem. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, and even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, 
but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, that tax collector, went down to his house justified, justified, forgiven of his sins, made right with God, rather than the other, the Pharisee in this case. For everyone who exalts himself, Jesus says, will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. When I read this parable, it's hard not to read it as almost, and I think it is. Sometimes I think we're afraid to say, oh, Jesus wrote this and told this in such a way, or told this in such a way. Rather, he didn't write it. Luke records it for us. But I think sometimes we're afraid to say, I think he was trying to get a laugh with this. When I read it, it's almost like reading a Saturday Night Live church lady skit. It's kind of a comical parody. I, matter of fact, I wonder if that wasn't Christ's intent, was to kind of lower the listener's defenses by laughing at the exaggerated piousness of this character described as a Pharisee. This guy's a bundle of joy to be around, isn't he? In the New King James, or I'm sorry, in the New American Standard, it even says that the Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself. Not, not quietly praying without words. The Jewish Pharisees, when they go to the wall, if you go to Israel today, when they get to the temple, they can't get in the temple anymore. It doesn't exist. But when they get to the wall, they're at the wall and they're praying. There's, there's voices everywhere. They pray out loud. That was the position of prayer. But the New American Standard, in, interpreting the language here, is literally he wasn't praying to God. He was praying to himself. And it seems pretty clear because all he can talk about is himself. I, 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 I. Five times. And it's almost like Jesus is telling the story and, 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 and the listener would be like, that's ridiculous. Nobody would be that ridiculous. But then he contrasts it with the, with the other end, the humility of the tax collector, the one who knew he was a sinner, everybody considered a sinner, sinner, sinner. nobody liked him. And he comes, and, and I can relate to his posture, beating his chest. Sometimes I figuratively and literally beat my chest because there's something in there, there's this heart that I have that does things that I don't want it to do, and I'm like, no, why do you do that? And that's his posture. I read this story and I, and I chuckle. It, it, I mean, I almost have to laugh at it. And then I'm arrested by the fact that, you know what? There's two sinners in this story and I'm both of them. At different points in my life, I'm both of them. I have a tendency to look around and we do it in church. You know, we, we have that tendency to look around and compare ourselves in righteousness based on those that are in our midst. Well, certainly my life's not as screwed up and I'm not as bad as they are. And this man, the tax collector, had it right. God, 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 be merciful for me, to me, a sinner. It's kind of like the, 
story of the prodigal son earlier on. You know, sometimes I read that and I'm the, I'm the younger son. Sometimes I'm the older brother. I can be both of them at different times. And here I can be both of these men at different times. Jesus goes through now, instead of parables, he tells a story of the children coming to him and how they were forbidden. And Jesus makes it clear, unless you allow those children to come, unless you come as those children have come, you'll never receive the kingdom of God. You need to be just like those children. Don't prevent them from coming. As a matter of fact, let them be your teachers on how you need to approach the throne of prayer, how you need to approach the God of the universe. Let them be your model for prayer. Come with childlike heart, childlike faith, childlike expectation, childlike eyes. He goes from that story right into the story that we're all very familiar with, the story of the rich young ruler. Jesus says that there was a certain ruler that came to him in verse 18, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. Jesus is making a statement there. Did you just call me God? If you did, you're correct. And he looks at him, he says, you know the law. And he focuses again, these two tablets, he focuses on the second commandments that deal with the relationship with man. Do not murder Do not commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And listen, you know when you break any of those laws, it's pretty clear. This rich young ruler looks at him and says, I've done all those things, I'm good, I'm righteous. So when Jesus heard those things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. He never addressed the first tablet of the law, but instead he points it out to him. He says, you still lack one thing. You have a God that's a God before me, a God before the God of the universe. Sell all that you have, that's your God. And follow me, that's your God too. You're your own God. You want to follow yourself, be your own man, do your own thing. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now listen, there's been a lot of explanation on this language. What did it really mean? It really meant that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Literal camel through a literal needle. Pastor Joe Foch, I love his teaching on, the, on this. He says the only way he can think of to do that is to get a very large blender and then have a lot of time. And maybe you'll get the camel through the needle. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? I don't have a blender that big enough. And this is is where this, this, listen, you want to be taught to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples? Maybe it was Peter that asked that question, I don't know. But Peter's about to get a lesson in that type of teaching. Because Peter has sat through all of these stories. He's seen 
He's heard the parables. That's the classroom teaching. He's been there to witness the stories. That's the practical application. And now as Jesus finishes this encounter with the rich young parable, I want you to just kind of get right up behind Peter. Get up real close to him. You're in this group with him now. You're looking right over Peter's shoulder. You're, you're feeling his vibe. You're hearing what he's hearing. You're seeing what he's seeing. And you're trying to understand what Peter's experiencing here because he is in the classroom of prayer right now. Peter said since you, they ask who can be saved, Jesus says things that are impossible with men are possible with God. And then Peter, you're standing right behind him, he says this, See that we have left all and followed you. In other words, Peter says, Lord, aren't we righteous? <laughs> Did he forget the stories that he just heard? Lord, aren't we righteous? Aren't we good enough? Didn't we do enough? Jesus says to them, fortunately he didn't grab Peter and put him in the center and single him out. He says to the group, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. And you can stand right behind Peter. You can try to put yourself in his place. But I wonder if he's just starting once again to go, man, I need to go back for remedial training. I need to be like that widow, persistent in my prayers. I need to be humble like that tax collector, humbling myself. I need to have childlike faith like these children that we have tried to turn away. And maybe I need to get in the blender and be all churned up and broken down. The chunks, my hard heart ground down. My world that I try to separate into godly things, holy things, righteous things. And then matters of the family, matters of work. I try to divide them all. Maybe it just all needs to go back into the blender. The blender of the kingdom of God and live today in that kingdom, Lord, that you would have your way with me. As we close this morning, there's one last story in the, in, the, in the chapter here that we didn't get a chance to talk on much, but you're familiar with it. It's the story of blind Bartimaeus. Jesus now, he has a statement regarding his Mind being set towards Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit blocks the disciples from understanding that. I think that's important for us to hear too. Sometimes maybe there is a blocking that God keeps us from understanding certain things. He didn't promise you understanding. He promised you peace in the place of understanding. But he prays and he sets his eyes towards Jerusalem. And as the procession starts its way towards Jericho and up towards the road that would lead up of Jerusalem, there is a blind man that hears the procession and he cries out to Jesus. He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples are like, shh, be quiet, you're bothering him. He's got important things to go, places to go. And Jesus says, no, bring, bring him to me. Bring him near to me. He says, come near. 
What do you want me to do for you, Jesus says. The Gospel of Mark tells us that when Jesus said, come here, that that blind man left everything he had behind. He had a cloak. That was it. He left more than the, fair, than the, the rich young ruler left. The cloak that would keep him warm at night, that would be his bed, that would be the thing that he would put out on the street, that alms and, and offerings would be offered to him. It was everything. He left it behind and he comes to Jesus and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And it may be one of the great lessons of answering prayer that the disciples will ever, ever see. That blind man says, I want to receive my sight and Jesus simply that quick. No qualifications, no bells and whistles, no fireworks, no angels from heaven. He just looks at the man and says, receive your sight. It all began with a shout. A blind man perceiving that there was truth in his presence, crying out and saying, have mercy on me. Would you stand with me this morning? In a room this size, it's hard to believe that there may not be somebody that for the first time perceived, being spiritually blind, perceived that there was truth in your presence. And this morning, all you need to do is cry out and say, Lord, have mercy on me. And I believe Jesus will answer that prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. And Lord, we thank you for so patiently teaching us what it is to commune with you. And Lord, now we sing a last song, a song of prayer. God, that you would teach us how to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.